Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you all. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, next we're going to have a storyteller. And we do this as a church as a way to uh, get connected more deeply with each other. And uh, my great hope, actually, is that every single person uh, tells a story or two at some point from up here so that you all can appreciate my job better. <laughs> so today we have a very special young man. Marcus, come on up and tell us a story. For the record, Peter, we already appreciate what you do. We just don't like telling you. He has risen. I always wanted to do that. Okay, before I even start what's going to be the bulk of my story, I want to share the overall theme. So my personal belief is we are God's instrument for change, and he uses us to affect other people. So today, I'm going to share a story about how I got, got to see God change other people's lives with other people. So in 2015, when I was 10, I embarked on a missions trip to Guatemala. Really fun. If you want to go on a missions trip, Kathy Riper's in the back. You can talk to her. And Al, where are you? There you are, Al. All right. You can talk to them. They can help you out. So my first impression of Guatemala was... It was rather unkempt. The streets were dirty, there were poverty-stricken people everywhere, and it all kind of felt dull and far from glamorous. One reason for this is 22 years ago, Guatemala went through a 32-year civil war that effectively crippled their country, and during this war, the native Ashil people were the target of oppression. Their men being forced into military service by both sides, and their women and children killed without hesitation. Now, being 10 years old, I hadn't been exposed to the poverty and hunger of third world countries outside of America, so it was a really eye-opening and jarring experience. Life in Guatemala is extremely tough. An example of something that stood out to me was when my dad and I were walking back from the NFE school in Naba, and we happened to bought a dog, eating another dog's jaw. And this revelation brought a new perspective to Guatemala. It was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I realized pretty quickly that I wouldn't last a week in Guatemala. One of the most prominent reasons being I am a terrible bargainer and most common business in Guatemala relies on bargaining. So to give an example, um, once my dad was trying to teach my sister and I how to bargain effectively, and my dad said, Marcus, I'd be happy with 20. And most people would go down. I went up to 25. <laughs> and when my dad asked me why, I said, well, dad, you said you'd be happy with 20, so you'd be a lot happier with 25, right? <laughs> In short, my bargaining skills are suboptimal. <clears throat> but as I progressed through this experience, I learned more about another country, another culture, and the challenges people can face in regions without access to wealth and comfort, like we, like America, and it has helped me form a greater connection with my sense of empathy and helped me check my ego, which my family can attest can be rather large at times. <laughs> but on the same trip, the Guatemalans we'd reached out to were getting the title for their land, which, to give some context onto why that's so important, is after years of getting nothing for their hard work and being treated as second-class citizens, they were finally getting something back, ownership of their own property. To see the impact they had on, that had on them was 
absolutely revelatory for me, and it made me consider, how does God use me for change? And I'm still trying to answer that question. Now, I'm not saying I got back from Guatemala, and I was just like, you get a land deed, and you get a land deed, and you get a land deed. But it made me more aware of the suffering and pain around me, and made me consider the repercussions of my own actions. Guatemala made me a better person. And this week, I want to challenge you to consider the changes you're having on the people around you, from your best friend to total strangers, and think about how God is using you as his instrument for change. Thank you for listening to my story. And this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 1 through 18 and 1 through 10 from Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 in the New American Standard Bible. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which in his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even in the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Jesus Christ for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not a as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For, he, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk with him. The word of the Lord. Good to see you all again. Uh, my name is Peter, one of the pastors here. And we are starting a new series today in the book of Ephesians. And the series is called In Christ, and uh, after Ephesians, we'll look at uh, the book of Acts, and we'll call that series In Culture. <clears throat> Today, we want to talk about the requisite Christ. I want to ask the question, is Jesus really necessary? Is he somebody sort of nice, and he represents good things? He's a good guy, but is he necessary? And the Bible seems to say so, that his life was necessary, that his Death was necessary. It was necessary that the Son of Man should die. And it was necessary that God should be raised from the dead. And I want to sort of uh, hover over this idea of the resurrection a little bit today. 
Uh, I'm not sure what you've observed about life around you, but for me, I see this cycle play out everywhere, the cycle of life, death, and resurrection. Everything seems to be a pattern of being born, and then it starts decaying in its value, or uh, literally, and then it enters a season of death, and the things that had constituted life uh, gets broken down, and it's rebirthed as something else. I see this pattern everywhere, and I also not only see it everywhere, but I see that it's necessary, that everything needs to live, and everything needs to die, and everything is sort of crying out to be born again. And not only do I see the cycle of life, death, and resurrection everywhere, I also keep landing at this place, this truth, that I don't really know how to do the whole life, death, resurrection thing all on my own. I find that I keep looking for somebody outside of me. In fact, somebody, something, a force that's outside of the systems to which I belong altogether. I want somebody from outside the system to intervene and help me do the life, death, and resurrection cycle. And the person I keep landing at is this person that the Bible names as Jesus, who is the Christ. And that's really what Christians believe. Christians believe that this world is engaged in this cycle that it can't break itself out of. Life, death, and then this longing for resurrection, for redemption, for new life, to be born again. And whether you are a spiritual person, a Christian, a churchgoer, an atheist, it doesn't matter who you are or what labels you wear, I think you see this pattern everywhere. And I think you know you need help with this pattern. And I keep coming to this place where I conclude the only one reliable, trustworthy, competent, able to help me through this cycle is Jesus, who is the Christ. Okay, here's a random and kind of uh, small example. Uh, This was just yesterday. It was a beautiful day yesterday. Amen? We will take those as early or as often as they will come. And uh, my, my, uh, I'm Asian, and my wife is Asian. My kids are Asian. And so we did the Asian thing. We went to go see the cherry blossoms at UW. How many of you have gone to UW to take pictures or see the cherry blossoms? What percentage, according to your eyes, were Asian over there? And it gets more Asian every year. I feel like we just own that school one day out of the year when the cherry blossoms are in peak season. All the Asians of the world get a memo, and we descend onto this campus. And so we were there, and uh, we entered, you know, from the northeast corner of the quad and immediately started judging every other Asian that was there because it was more Asian than I'd ever seen. And every single one of them were, what were they doing? Taking pictures, (laughs) taking selfies, helping each other fake selfies. They were literally faking selfies, like where the person has an arm extended, but it's actually a friend who's taking the picture. So it's it's got a better, you know, uh, quality to it. And I'm judging every single one of these people. I don't want to be identified with them. I'm not one of them. And then you know what I had to do? 
opened my bag, and I whipped out the camera to put to shame all of the cameras on campus. <laughs> I used to be a professional photographer. Just the body is $3,000, and the lens is $2,000. It's a $5,000 camera sitting on top of a $500 tripod. I am the most Asian of them all. <laughs> I could not believe the walking stereotype that I'm growing up to become. We fit right in. That's wonderful. Um, so we set up this camera. Everybody gets lined up. And then I look through the viewfinder. It looks perfect. And I go on to turn the camera on. It won't turn on. And I think, oh, no. Look in the battery compartment. Battery's in there. The battery is dead. It's not charged. And now this is where the story really begins. Everything, that was just fun. But this is where I get into my usual Peter gear. I shift into sort of, I just get upset. First, it's just general upset. There's no direction to this. There's no point. And then it gets pretty pointed. I start feeling this just deep, welling up from deep within this need to have to find the person who messed up. Now, whose camera is this? It's my camera. But I really wanted to blame somebody else. I did. And I picked one of my innocent kids, and I said, did somebody take the battery out? Did you take the battery out? And this is right before I checked the battery compartment and realized the battery was in there. And I said, you know what? Let's use the other camera. Because we had like seven other cameras with us, because we're Asian. No shortage of cameras. We were just finding cameras on the grass everywhere. So we took, we took some family photos, turned out pretty good, but my victory is that I've been working night and day for weeks, maybe even months, to come into greater awareness about this trait about me. Why do I have to always find somebody to blame? It's like a showstopper. Business can't go on until we determine whose fault it is. And not only do we have to find the fault we have to punish them, not like overtly, but we have to shame them just enough so they just feel awful about it, and they can't think about anything else. They just know all of it rests squarely on their big, fat, mistake-making heads, <laughs> you know, and they have to sort of walk around bearing this weight all day, and we just feel better when somebody's feeling bad, and that's just how it goes in the Sung family. It's wonderful. <laughs> and I want this trait in me to die. It's been 44 years I've lived with this trait. I don't really know where it comes from, but I just, I got its number now. And I feel like God's put a handle on it for me. And I've tried over the years to get rid of this thing, to keep it down or chase it away, you know, exercise it, whatever. And there it is still. But as I think about this and all the damage that it does to my kids, the way it's part of their nutritious, you know, meals, it's awful. I think about what it does to my wife, what it's done to my sisters, you know, how I've made other people feel, you know, in the other teams and jobs and situations I find myself in. It's not a funny, stupid little thing. It's a destructive force. It's really a part of how I operate. 
And if you haven't felt it yet, it's because I'm, I'm really good at keeping it suppressed around you. But trust me, you've been blamed <laughs> by me. It's been your fault at some point. How will it die? I don't know. But I know that for a long time, this trait in me has lived. It's thrived. And now it's time for it to die. It needs to go away. The world will not suffer any harm if I stop blaming people. The latest thing I read this week about this trait was, if you like something or if you don't like something, who cares? When you like something or dislike something, all it does is distort your perception. You're going to exaggerate the thing you like or the thing that you don't like. You're the one that's missing out at the end of the day. Your opinion about whether you like something or don't like something doesn't matter. It adds no value to the world. I read that this week, and I thought, oh my goodness, I need to stop blaming people, because who cares? But I can't do it. It's so hard to change. It's even harder for others to try to get me to change. Small story, but the question is big. How can I possibly change? And so we have verse, chapter 1, verse 18 and following. Let me read this for us again. It says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. A lot of big words here and run-on sentences, but the basic gist is Christ and Christ alone. This is the Christian faith. Christ alone has the power, the authority to die with us, to help us to die, and he alone has the power to raise us up from death into new life. It's not some Easter miracle we're talking about only. We're talking about a general pattern of the universe. All of our known universe runs in, these, in this pattern of life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus, the Bible says, is the lone authority over this cycle. He alone is God who died and lives again and therefore is able to show us how to die and how to live Again, and I don't want to believe this, but I see this pattern and I see that I need somebody from outside of the system, somebody who is not like me, but who has been through everything I have been through to help me. This is the conclusion I land on. This is my favorite non-biblical quote on the reality of the pattern of life, death, and resurrection. I shared it about two years ago. I want to share it with you again says this, Mike McCarg, in the beginning, there was a rapid expansion of a singularity. 380,000 years later, there was light. 
And when there was light, there was hydrogen and helium, and they were stable, fundamental forces of physics which worked together to birth the first stars. And those stars lived for hundreds of millions of years before they died and exploded and spread their essence across the sky into clouds of heavier dust than those that existed before. The forces of physics worked together once again to craft new stars, now tightly packed into the first galaxies, and the cycle repeated. That cycle had to happen several times before we could have planets. Planets could only exist because a few generations of stars died and were reborn. And it was from that process that this planet that we live on was allowed to exist. And this planet we live on is covered with a film of life unlike anything we've seen in the universe. That life is fed by a process where carbon from the air and minerals from the soil are attached together with the energy of photons through photosynthesis. So everything on this planet lives by the constant sacrifice and dying of the nearest star. Every single blade of grass, every tree, every bush on this planet is a resurrection of the sun's energy. And I exist because I steal that energy by consuming other things that have died. That dead matter literally returns to life in my body through my metabolism. And one day I will die. And a lot of my atoms will go right back to being alive in something else. One day our sun will explode and spread its guts and its essence across the sky and then will form new planets and new stars. Resurrection is the pattern of the physical reality we see today. Resurrection is the language of creation. Death, burial, and renewal is the way that change occurs. And so, do I find it that incredulous that somehow the source of all left his signature on our civilization through resurrection? You understand, if the pattern is life, death, and resurrection in our physical, material universe, that by this pattern you and I exist that this pattern is going on billions of times right this second in our bodies, in our solar system, in the known galaxies. Everything we know as reality and existence lives by this pattern of life, death, and resurrection. And it begs the question, why? Who authored this process? Why must it be so? It's because we have a creator. We're all part of a much larger, more fundamental narrative that is the narrative, the story of God himself. God gave birth to us. And his story is to save us through life, death, and resurrection. Is it weird that he himself would undergo life, death, and resurrection as a way to save us? I personally have come to land on the truth that I need Christ, the author of life, death, and resurrection in my life for me to undergo this pattern again and again and again because I see the necessity of it. And the question to you today is, do you have somebody who will help you, who will empower you, who will take you through this process of life, death, and resurrection? 
And if you don't, I submit to you that this person is the Christ. And today's your opportunity to say, yes, I would like to have this person in my life to help me through life, death, and resurrection. Jesus asked his disciples this question, will you go away or will you stay with me? And the disciples answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so they remained with Christ. The gospel is simply this. Everything in life goes through a pattern of life, death, and resurrection. And the death energy that we feel in life is that this pattern is not staying the same, but it's spiraling downwards towards chaos and decay. Unless we have intervention of energy from outside of our system, something we call love, the power of God. When God intervenes, we go through the same pattern of life, death, and resurrection, but this time we spiral upwards. That Christ makes the difference. And this is what chapter 2 says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But then verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. By grace, by humility, we have access to this power to spiral upwards with Christ towards ultimate resurrection. Now, there's only two other alternatives, and I want to lay those out, and then we'll close. The first alternative that most of the world is engaged in is what can be generally called the human potential movement. Somehow, if you don't believe in an outside savior like a Christ, then you have to believe in your own ability to save yourself because you feel undoubtedly this spiraling downwards towards death and decay. But human beings, you, other human competence can intervene and can maybe save you. So that's one alternative. The other alternative is to reject that this cycle even exists, that things are sort of just living. You have to deny that things live and then die and feel this urge to be born again. And if you live that way, then you're engaged in what's called denial behavior and rationalization. You do whatever you want to do or think you want to do, and then you rationalize it. And so you believe you need help, and you put that uh, need squarely onto human shoulders. That's the um, human potential movement. 
or you deny that you need help and you engage in denial behavior and rationalization, or the third option I'm submitting to you today is that you bend your knee to Christ. You acknowledge him as Lord. And you say, I need a savior in my life. I think those are our only three human options. We all live in one of these three. There is no other choice. This is the way every single human being must live. Believe in yourself, be in denial about yourself, or bend your knee to Christ. What will you choose this day? I'm in the middle of reading these two really powerful books in my experience, uh, both of them written by secular people. They're not believers. Uh, one is Steven Pinker. Some of you know he's a famous guy. He uh, wrote a book, a very thick book, called Bet The Better Angels of Our Nature. And it's a history of violence in human history. How has violence sort of progressed over the years? And he says it's just horrible. We start out by nature being violent. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. We have just no ability to afford dignity to human life. We just don't get it, you know? Except, he says, in this one period when history sort of pivoted and violence started decreasing. As a secular historian, you know what he acknowledges? That this historical pivot is when Jesus came. You know, it's, it's so interesting for me to read about this. I mean, just talk about Resurrection Day. You know, Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day. Who were Jesus' first witnesses? It was women. They were the first messengers and missionaries. They were told, go tell Peter and the disciples what you have seen. Well, how about we go back a little bit further? Who were the ones who remained faithful and stayed with Christ? It was women. All the men had scattered and fled. Now, it's amazing that it was women who stayed with Christ. It was women who witnessed Christ. But it's more amazing that the writers of the Gospels felt this was so true, they left it in the story, even though it really discredited the whole movement because women were considered property. Their testimony was invalid in court. They never testified in court. This was not a thing. Women were not seen as equals by any stretch of the imagination. Women were not even deemed worthy of love. And so you didn't have sort of women you loved. You had other things you loved, but women were a necessary evil. You just needed them to have babies. This is the history of women in our world until Christ came. And then he lifts women up and says, you shall be my witnesses. You shall be my faithful ones. You shall be my missionaries. Just a small example how Christ is the pivot in human history. And somebody like a Steven Pinker has to acknowledge it. A second resource, reading this book called The Triumph of Christianity by Bart Ehrman. Uh, recognized, awarded historian uh, at North Carolina. And uh, Terry Gross of Fresh Air, uh, NPR, uh, was interviewing Bart Ehrman. And her first question, her first question was, uh, Bart, uh, you're not a Christian. You're an agnostic. Why would you title this book The Triumph of Christianity? It makes it sound like you're a Christian and you're sort of voting for Jesus here. And he says, well, I know I'm an agnostic, but I'm also a historian. 
And as far as a historian can tell, Jesus wins. He won because the pivot in the trajectory of history came with Christ. And he acknowledges this in his secular history book. Now, I read things like that, and it lends credibility to the reality and the necessity of Christ in this world. I don't want to have lived in a world before Christ, and I'm glad I live here today. Maybe I don't acknowledge him. Maybe I don't acknowledge his resurrection. And sometimes I have doubts about the particularities of the way the story is presented. But really, if I look at history, I sit in a seat of privilege because of Christ, because with him, his kingdom came. All of us today are enjoying a better life, and we're all headed in this bend towards Christ in the arc of history. So I want to tell you, Christ has risen. I know this because I can't live on my own, and yet I live. So today, who and what will you put your faith in? Where do you think the pivot of your personal story will be? I personally think it's going to be Christ in our history of our world and in the story of your life. Amen.